I invite you to turn with me to Jude, the epistle of Jude, and we'll be reading from verse 5 to verse 15. Jude 5 to 15. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude, in writing this epistle, is all about urging Christians to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And in this passage that we have just read, Jude suggests that as Christians, we should contend for the faith delivered once for all to the saints, not only because of intruders, those who have insidiously crept into the church, but we should earnestly contend for the faith because of the sure doom, the sure destruction of apostates. Keep in mind who is an apostate. An apostate is one who once professed faith in Christ, but ultimately abandons the faith. 
A true believer does not do that, as we have said in the past. And in verse 5, Jude begins this section, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, and so on and so forth. You know, as we study the scriptures, it doesn't take long for us to see that one striking feature of biblical Christian living is its emphasis on remembering and keeping in mind the truths of the Word of God. You'll notice this in the writings of the Apostle Paul as he encourages Timothy to endure the rigors of ministry. He counsels him in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says there to young Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he reminds Timothy, he writes to Timothy these words. He says, Timothy, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself Remind them of these things. In Titus chapter 3 verse 1, Paul would have Titus remind his congregation to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And similarly, the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 says to his readers that he endeavors always to remind them of certain truths that they already know, and are established in. And clearly, the lesson here for us is this, that we must never assume, we must never assume that biblical truths which have been taught, biblical truths which have been heard, have been once for all learnt. The fact is, as Christians, we need to hear again and again and again even the old familiar truths of the Word of God because those truths can easily be forgotten. They may be heard and yet not fully understood. They might be heard and yet not obeyed. I heard a preacher recently, in fact, it's a preacher I listened to time and again. It's a young man. I admire him for his zeal. And this young preacher, he remarked, he says we must be, he doesn't want to preach what he calls trivial truths, familiar truths, because people already know those truths already. And I said, man, if I had an opportunity to speak with this young man. You see, as Christians, our fortitude, our protection from spiritual shipwreck, as well as our progress in grace, are to a large extent the base dependent on our knowing, not only on our knowing, but on our keeping in memory the truths of the Word of God. And to the extent that we are forgetful of those truths, to the extent that we are forgetful of the Word of God, we fall behind in our walk with God, becoming in the process vulnerable to attack from the evil one. We suffer spiritual defeat, and so the Apostle Jude sees it necessary to remind believers of the truths of the word of God so that they might be able to withstand the threatening tide of apostasy. Hence he says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, etc., etc. 
And you'll notice the same thing in verse 17. He does very much the same thing in verse 17 because in verse 17, again, stressing the importance of remembering the word of God, the teachings of the word of God, he writes there in verses 17 and 18, but you must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, in verses 5 through 7, Jude specifically spells out what he wants his readers to remember as it, regard, as it relates to the word of God, which is this. He wants them to remember God's past acts of judgment on apostates in the human as well as the heavenly realm. Jude would have his readers remember that having in the past unleashed his wrath on apostates, on those who turn away from him, God will surely do so again with respect to those who likewise turn away from him. And here in these verses, Jude, notice, Jude cites three historical instances of divine judgment upon those who turn away from the Lord. Number one, the destruction of those Israelites who, having been delivered from Egyptian bondage, then resorted to unbelief, verse 5. The chained imprisonment of fallen angels who abandoned their divinely assigned sphere, we see that in verse 6. And then thirdly, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for indulgence in immoral sexual activity. And what is interesting to note here is that Jude, as he relates these incidents, as he recalls these incidents, he does not do so in canonical order. That is to say, he does not follow the order as set forth in Scripture. Rather, he begins with the judgment of God falling on those among his covenant people, ancient Israel, who fell into unbelief, no doubt hinting at the fact that when it comes to judging sin, God has no favorites. He then calls attention to the fallen angels, and then he turns to the Gentile peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's make some observations regarding each of these instances of divine judgment on apostasy. First of all, beginning with verse 5, the destruction of those Israelites who fell into unbelief. Here's what Jude says. Jude says, listen carefully, he says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now right off the bat, there are those who will readily point to this verse, And make the argument, they will say, see, there you have it. Believers in Christ can, in fact, lose their salvation. To which our response is, not so fast. Not so fast. The fact is, we have to consider the particular historical circumstances of this event Jude is referring to. Jude is referring here to that time during the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel 
when they were instructed by God to go and take possession of the land of Canaan, which God had promised ages before that he would give to Abraham and his descendants. And despite convincing proof from Caleb and the other men who went up to the land of Canaan to spy out the land, despite the good report that these men brought back, that the land was indeed a fruitful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as God had promised. Some of these Israelites, the word of God tells us, refused to enter and take possession of the land. They had known firsthand the mighty, delivering hand of God in rescuing them from Egyptian bondage. They had seen God performing miracle after miracle on their behalf. And sadly, despite the many manifestations of God's power on their behalf, and despite his many promises, despite his many assurances that he would be with them, even as they would go up to the land of Canaan and take possession of it, they would not even attempt to go and do so. Unbelieving as they were, they refused to trust God. They refused to take him at his word. And to bring into focus the outright apostasy, the willful apostasy, the willful turning away from God, from faith in God, from trust in God, the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8, 15, and 16, diagnosed their attitude, here it comes, as one of rebellion against God. That's how the writer puts it in verses 8. 15 and 16 of Hebrews 3, he describes their lack of faith, their refusal to trust God, to believe God, to enter that land, to take that land as rebellion against God. He says in verse 16 that they heard and yet rebelled. He says in verse 18 that they were disobedient, on account of which, verse 17, their bodies fell in the wilderness. The writer then makes this point in summarizing their case, their whole attitude towards the promises of God. He says there in verse 19 that they were, of Hebrews chapter 3, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Yes, they were part of those who had been miraculously delivered from Egyptian bondage. Yes, they participated in Passover. Yes, the blood of the Lamb was shed. Yes, they participated in the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, a marvelous picture of divine salvation. We could say that like many today, they had a religious experience. Outwardly, they were part of the redeemed covenant community Yet in the end, by their persistent unbelief, by their persistent refusal to trust God, that clearly identified them as apostates, as those who had abandoned faith in God. As such, they demonstrated the truth of the Apostle Paul, the truth stated by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. And you remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 6? He says this, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In a real sense, Paul could say this, that not all who belong to the church, that is to say, the outward expression of the church, is of the church. Again, what a frightening reminder. 
how that it's very much possible for one to be outwardly a part, a member of the church, a member of the body of Christ outwardly, and yet at heart be an apostate, yet at heart be one who was never, ever truly saved. And this is what differentiates professors of salvation from possessors of salvation. If you ask the question, what is the one defining feature that ultimately distinguishes those who are saved from those who are not saved, it is this, it is that of apostasy. It is that of coming to that place where one simply fails to trust God and to continue with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a condition that marks those who were never saved in the first place. And so by contrast, true believers, as we have said in the past, continue believing in Christ. They are not of those, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 39, who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and hence preserve their souls. And so by way of contrast, I want us to notice, go back to verse 1 to see how Paul, or rather Jude, characterizes those who are true believers. Because there in verse 1, Jude makes it clear, he establishes at least four truths concerning those who are truly saved. If you are saved, if you are truly saved, my friends, these are four things that will characterize you. First of all, believers in Christ, Jude says, are those who are called. They are those whom God has savingly, sovereignly called by his grace. They are not those who work their way to heaven, no. They are not those who try to be Christians. They are not those who try to be good. They are those who have been sovereignly called by divine grace. And how do we know that we have been called by divine grace? Because we answered the call. Because we answered the call. And this is a huge deal. Because the word of God tells us that when it comes to the call of God, we have the assured declaration in Romans chapter 11 verse 29 that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, they are without a change of mind on God's part. You see, having come to faith in Christ, having been sovereignly called by the grace of God, we, the Bible tells us, are secured in Christ. Secondly, according to Jude, true believers in Christ are those who are in God the Father. They are in God the Father, and being in God the Father suggests that they not only share in the life of God, but that they are shielded by the power of God. They are shielded and secured by God. A reminder of Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, which teaches that the life of the believer is hid with Christ in God. You and I, my friends, that's why the Bible tells us constantly throughout the New Testament, Paul uses an expression, believers, true believers, are those who are in Christ. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And a person is either in Christ or outside of Christ. Even as you sit there this morning, even as I stand here this morning, the truth is, objectively speaking, we are in one of two places. Either it is that we are in Christ or we are not in Christ. And then thirdly, notice what Jude suggests. True believers are loved by God. 
Jude describes him as beloved, and the Greek verb here, translated as beloved, is in the perfect tense, which denotes action in the past with continual abiding effect. The verb is also a participle, so that the grammatical force of what Jude is saying here, Jude is literally saying here, that true believers in Christ are those who, having been loved by God in the past, in the present and onward, are continually being loved by God. That is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, 39 and following, he will ask this question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists a host of possibilities or suggestions. And here's the conclusion he comes to. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Having loved his own, the word of God tells us, he loved them to the very end. We see that in John 13. And then note you like this one. Fourthly, according to Jude, to underscore the security of believers in Christ, Jude says that they are kept for Jesus Christ. That is to say, they are shielded, they are guarded, they are protected for Jesus Christ, the one who died for them. According to verse Peter chapter 1, verse 5, they are being kept, how? They are being kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's the guarantee we have, that those of us who are saved, those of us who are called by God, beloved by God, kept by God, will never be lost because Jesus made it clear in his prayer. He says, Father, I will that none of them that you have given them might be lost. He says, my father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man will be able to pluck them out of my hand. What a marked contrast then to those who apostatize, to those who turn from the faith, suggesting that they were never saved to begin with. Jude warns, again we read, he says this, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What's the message here? The message here, my friends, is this. Make sure you are not a false believer. Make sure you are not a mere professor of salvation, but you are indeed a possessor of salvation in Christ. It is very much possible, as we have said time and again, for one to be religious and yet not right with God. You cannot simply rest on the fact that so many years ago you came to Christ. You will never see that in the New Testament. The question is, what is it like now? Are you trusting him now? Is your faith anchored in him now? Is your, is your faith anchored in him? Are you committed to him as your Lord and as your Savior? It is the one who continues to believe the word of God says who is saved. It's not whether you were saved, as important as that is, but the question is, are you saved right now? Am I suggesting you can lose your salvation? Not at all, but the question is, you might not have been there in the first place. And that is what Jude is talking about. Jude is warning, Jude is saying, remember that Jesus who saved the people from Egypt, from bondage, afterwards destroyed those 
Not those he saved, but those who did not believe. Are you truly believing on Christ? Are you looking to your good works? Are you looking to your baptism? Are you looking to your church membership? Are you looking to how good you are? Or are you looking at Christ? Are you looking to him? Now, the second example of divine judgment and apostasy cited by Jude is this, the chained imprisonment of fallen angels who abandoned their divinely assigned sphere. We see that in verse 6. Possessing great power and ability, great power and ability, angels, the Bible teaches in Psalm 103, verse 20, Psalm 148, 2-5, were created by God to serve and worship him. They were created to love God. They were created to be messengers of God. In fact, that's what the word angels mean. Angel means messenger. They were created to be emissaries of the divine will. And what we gather here from the Apostle Jude, and Jude evidently is referring to some literature outside of Scripture known as the apocryphal writings, Jude is saying here that whereas angels have their respective position of authority, some whom we know today as fallen angels left their position. Now I remember when we were in Genesis chapter 6. We had a difficulty with Genesis chapter 6 concerning who the sons of God were and what was their particular sin. And I was very, very cautious to say what that sin was. Jude tells us here they did not stick with their former position. They left their assigned place. And if you look at the next verse and you look at what the next verse says, which we'll come to in a while, there's a strong suggestion, and we're not going to take that position yet, but there's a very, very strong argument, a very strong suggestion here that what these angels did was to become involved sexually with human beings. But be that as it may, we won't go into that this morning, but suffice it to say, Peter tells us that they left their assigned position. And suggested by the verbs Jude uses in verse 6 is that theirs was a willful, a willful, deliberate abandonment of their post, an outright, deliberate departure from the position from the dwelling that God had appointed for them, which is, of course, the very essence of apostasy. Why? Because apostasy simply means to fall away from. When Satan rebelled against God, evidently these angels were thrown out of heaven with him. We see that in Luke, suggested in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Revelation chapter 12, and verse 14. And on account of their rebellion, on account of their apostasy from God, these angels, with no hope of redemption, have been consigned to an eternity of separation from the light of God's favor, an eternity in hell which was created for them and the devil. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. 
No redemption for them, no hope. You and I, praise God, redemption was provided for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. These angels, they're lost, they're done. And according to Jude here, in verse 6, God, the Bible tells us, has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Gloomy darkness, what a ghastly imagery. Gloomy darkness. As one commentator knows, he says this, what could such a prison be like? He says, take your worst nightmare and worsen it. Scarier than the grossest horror film, spookier than walking through a cellar full of spiders without a flashlight, this place is no place you want to be. You know something? The tragedy is people are going to go there. Those who reject Christ, those who have never come to faith in Christ, those who reject the gospel, our Lord Jesus says, it will be said to them on that day, Matthew 25, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He says, there will is outer darkness. It's scary. What's the lesson we learn from these angels? Certainly, the lesson we learn here, beloved, is this, that position and privilege, position and privilege do not preclude the possibility of falling away from God and commitment to God. These were servants of God of the highest order. These were celestial beings, angelic beings, excelling in strength and power. We were created a little below them, and the Word of God tells us these angels nevertheless apostatized. They fell away from God. What a sobering reminder to us, my friends. A man could be a preacher of the gospel and yet fall away from God to eternal perdition. There's none who is exempt. There's none who is above the possibility of falling away. That's why Peter will say this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Wherefore the rather brethren give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. So privilege and position do not preclude the possibility of falling away from God, from commitment to God, much less does privilege and possession spare one from the judgment of God, from the wrath of God. Now the third example of divine judgment that apostasy cited by Jude is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for sexual, for immoral sexual indulgence. Here's what Jude says in verse 7. After speaking of the angels, he says this, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, note here the recurrent theme of apostasy. What is apostasy? An ap apostasy is departure from God and from God's standard. 
It is the willful departure from God and from the will of God. In this case, it is a rebellious departure for the Sodomite, for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a rebellious departure from that which God had ordained, or even we could say has ordained, namely the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. And so note the statements denoting the willful rejection of the divine order as established by God in creation. He says this. Notice what the text says. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, here it comes, unnatural desire. You know, while so-called progressive biblical scholars contend that the sin for which Sodom and Gomorrah was judged was not homosexuality, but in hospitality. You see, we have some sophisticated preachers and theologians around who, truth is, they have been educated beyond their intelligence. They claim that the particular sin was not homosexuality, but in hospitality. And the plain sense, when you have some time, read it. We don't have time to go into it. Genesis chapter 19, verses 5 through 9, makes it as plain as day to any person, regardless of your intelligence level, what the particular sin was. And notice also here in our text, verse 6, rather verse 7, notice this phrase, this clause, they pursued what? Unnatural desire. Now, the so-called gay movement is a hot-button issue in our time. It's a hot-button. You're not supposed to say anything. In fact, you're supposed to be cool, and you're supposed to be tolerant, and you're supposed to be just open up everything for everybody. And it's fashionable. It's fashionable in our time to, for some to label those who speak against this practice as being hateful and bigoted. So any kind of talk that is against homosexuality, any kind of preaching that, that touches on this subject is hateful, it's bigoted. In fact, in some countries it is deemed criminal, it's deemed criminal for pastors to preach against homosexuality or to attempt to counsel one in such a way as to have that person converted or to have that person not engage in the practice. And that's part of the insanity, of course, we're dealing with in our time. It's insane. And I want to suggest this, the fact that one disagrees, the fact that we disagree with a certain practice or lifestyle doesn't necessarily mean that we are hateful, that we are bigoted toward those who practice that lifestyle. And with that said, let me make this clear because I was talking to someone recently and I want to say it publicly here. Let me make it clear that as a church, we're all about ministering to people in the name of Christ, in the love of Christ. And what that means is that hatred of people, hatred of people and denigration of people who embrace this lifestyle is not something that the gospel of our Lord Jesus countenances. And for that reason, we as a church, we as a church are not, are not into hating and denigrating homosexuals. I want to make that clear. 
However, in fact, one more thing. I was saying to this person that if we should have somebody like that visiting us in this church, as far as I know, we would never, never ask that person to leave to step aside. We would never do that because that, of course, would not be in the spirit of ministry. Our Lord Jesus Christ ministered to sinners of all stations, sinners of all degrees, sinners from all walks of life. And it is not for you and me to determine who gets to hear the gospel. However, because we must honor God, because we must obey God rather than man, because we must honor God above the fancies and desires of our culture, we must, we must, we must, under the authority of Christ, preach in clear, unambiguous terms what he declares in his word about homosexuality. So, let me do just that. And I, you know, listen, I have no agenda. My function as a preacher of the word of God. Somebody says, listen, you're not being politically correct. And I'm going to tell you this, beloved. Listen, a hundred years from now, if Christ doesn't come, bones are going to be rotting in the grave. Including mine. But something serious is going to happen after that. We are going to stand before God in judgment. And let me say this. I would rather fear God... <laughs> And, and tremble before him than to pander to the fancies of men. My friends, the word of God shows homosexuality to be wrong, to be sinful on the following grounds. And let's go through them. Number one, in Leviticus 18, homosexuality appears among a list of sins which include, listen, Sexual relations with blood relatives, bestiality, and child sacrifice. Think of that for a moment. It's included with sins such as sexual relations with blood relatives, bestiality, and child sacrifice. It is described in the book of Leviticus as an abomination, which means, what is abomination? It means that God hates it, that God detests it, he doesn't like it. And abomination is a strong word because it suggests that he, not only that the fact that he doesn't like it, but that he intensely hates it with a passion. And just for the record, somebody says, well, what about the sin of pride and what about the sin of this and the sin of that? Let me say this, all sins ultimately damn souls to hell. Somebody says, in fact, one brilliant preacher, he says, when it comes to the sin of homosexuality, God whispers. But when it comes to sins of pride and, and injustice, he shouts, what nonsense. The word of God is strong. The word of God is firm. He says that God abominates it. The word of God commands. Here's what God says in Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
Leviticus 20 verse 13, he says this, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That's what God says. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, homosexuality is described. Here's how it's described. It's described as impurity. What is impurity? That which is dirty. Nasty. He says it's impure. It is described in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, as the dishonoring of one's body. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, it is spoken of as dishonorable passion, as exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. In Romans chapter 1, verse 27, it is characterized as the giving up of natural relations with the opposite sex. In, second, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, homosexuality is described as being contrary to sound doctrine. And the word that is translated there, sound, is from the Greek word from which we get our English word, hygienic. He says there, the word of God is affirming there that homosexuality is not in accord with hygienic doctrine. Homosexuality, the word of God, teaches results in divine judgment for those who practice it. According to Leviticus 18, 24, 25, it was for this sin that God drove out the Canaanites, dispossessing them of the land of Canaan. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, indulgence in homosexual lifestyle is symptomatic. It is symptomatic of something. It is symptomatic of what? It is symptomatic of the wrath of God on an individual or society that rejects him, that refuses to acknowledge him, a judgment in which persons are given up by God to a debased mind. That's what God says. That is what the word of God says. And more than that, ultimately, the sin of homosexuality, the word of God teaches. Here's what the word of God teaches. It excludes one from the kingdom of God. First Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Here's what Paul says. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And by the way, the Greek here is very specific at this point. The Greek doesn't say men who practice homosexuality. He uses two words. One is the word... For effeminate, that is to say, the one who plays the passive role, and the other for the active role. And he's saying here, neither of them will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. He says, don't be deceived. And again, just in case somebody says, well, is that the only sin for which a person goes to hell if they practice that sin? Listen to what Paul says. He says, nor thieves, 
If you keep stealing on your taxes, if you keep lying and cheating to get your way around, he says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, if you can't control the bottle, if you are ever given to drunkenness, nothing is wrong with drinking per se, based on our understanding of the word of God. But if the drink, if the problem is not taking the drink, the problem is when the drink takes you. It's when the drink takes the man, it's the problem, you know. And the word of God is saying here, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Thieves, it's a fancy word for thieves. People swindle you out of your money. He says, none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you are washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Word of God is saying, listen, you cannot hold on to that lifestyle. In fact, you cannot hold on to a, a, a lifestyle of sin of any kind and expect to enter the kingdom of God. The Word of God say, is saying there, the person who does that, the person who thinks that way, is living in deception. And so the Bible makes it clear that regardless of their religious profession, regardless of their sincerity, regardless of their talk, those who are given to homosexuality or to a life of sin in general will not make it into God's heaven. They won't. They won't. And that God is averse to this sin of homosexuality means then that there's no amount, listen, there's no amount of government, governmental legislation, no amount of protest or social acceptance of this practice that can ever make it right in the eyes of God. Listen, and I, listen, if they, we, we, if we are going to be true preachers and teachers of the word of God, we cannot play up to the culture. And I'd rather stop preaching. I'd rather stop preaching than to stand in the pulpit and to cater to the whims and fancies and to cower. Listen, never say never. Never say never. But by the grace of God, listen, my mouth is not going to be stopped when it comes to preaching the word of God on these matters. I'm prepared for the consequences. By God's grace. 100 years from now, bones are going to be rotting in the grave if Christ doesn't come, including mine. Those who are saved, of course, and I hope to be there, will be in heaven. Hundred years from now, those who hold power, those of our culture who have the loudest talk, will be cowering at the judgment bar of God. And when I understand that I have to give an account to God, by God's grace, I will not cower. In fact, to be that kind of preacher is to be the very kind of preacher Jude is talking about, an apostate. And there are many apostate preachers occupying pulpits in this land. 
So listen again to Jude's warning, verses 6 and 7. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What a horrible infliction of God's wrath is presented here. That entire region, go back and read the narrative, the entire region of Sodom and Gomorrah was raised by divine wrath in flaming fire. That dreadful event is described for us in Genesis chapter 19, 24, 25. We read the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God made a complete thorough wiping out, a complete destruction because of this sin. This was a consuming, devastating judgment. In the end, verse 28 of Genesis 19 says this, The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Now to every godless culture today, to those who subscribe to a self-made, so-called progressive, inclusive, apostate Christianity that only gives the nod of approval to, not only gives the nod of approval to, but practices a deviant sexual lifestyle, Jude, as it were, issues the solemn, timely admonition. Jude is saying this, remember and take warning from the horrible judgment that befell Sodom and Gomorrah. The message is clear. See what happens, Jude, is, Jude seems to be suggesting, see what happens when an individual, a society, a nation dishonors God, dismisses God from one's life. Jude is saying, let that be an example to everyone who turns from God, who rejects God, who pursues, who pursue their own ungodly agenda. In verses 14 and 15, notice Jude wraps up his point. And of course, by, when I say wraps up, the Jude wraps up to its point, you know the preacher is coming to an end. Jude wraps up his, his point regarding the sure doom of apostates. Here's what he says. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You hear the passion of Jude? You hear, you hear his passion? Jude is not even concerned about grammar. He's not impressed about style. He repeats, he repeats. They have committed ungodliness in an ungodly way and so on and so forth. They are ungodly this, ungodly that. And what Jude is saying in these two verses, verses 14 and 15, Jude is making this point that when the Lord comes back in blazing glory, and he's coming, he's coming. The judgment will unbear and expose the hearts of all men. Bringing to their attention in the most convicting, in the most, 
in, the, in an acutely troubling way the gravity of their sins before God, the holy and righteous judge. You see what happens right now? What are people doing? They're laughing, they're making fun of the things of Christ. They look at people like us and they say, we are backward. We are not progressive. They are saying we are hateful. And what the word of God is saying here is that when they stand before God, their hearts are going to be unbared. They are going to come into an acute sense of conviction, of dis-ease, of torment concerning their guilt before the holy and righteous God of heaven. What a terrifying time that will be. Think of what happens when persons are exposed here on earth, when their deeds are exposed to others, how frightened they are, how embarrassed they are. And think of what it will be when we stand before the holy and righteous God of heaven. He says he's coming back to convict them. He's coming back in fiery judgment to convict to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. They'll be seized with terror as they learn of their eternal doom. They'll be convicted at that time, only they won't be converted. At the end, the point Jude would have his readers understand, and that includes you and me is that wherever it is found, be it in heaven, among the angels, or on earth, among his covenant people, those who profess faith in him, or among the pagan Gentiles, the pagan unsaved world, God hates and punishes apostates. He hates and punishes sins. He hates apostasy. He punishes apostasy. He punishes those who defect from him, who depart from him. He's saying, as it were, take warning. Avoid the dead, the destructive path of apostasy. Stay true to the Lord. Don't listen to those preachers today who are so progressive, who are so sophisticated, who are so theological in their defense of sin and ungodliness. Don't let them lead you astray, he's saying, because your doom is sure. Keep in memory all the truths and warnings of the word of God. And so this epistle of Jude serves as a solemn, it serves as a solemn warning against the notion, my friends, that one can sit lightly by the grace of God, claiming to be saved while practicing sin, while living in sin, while pursuing one's own sinful agenda. Here's the word of God, here's what the word of God says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, and it teaches us, it teaches us, it instructs us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age while we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. If you are saved, I'm saved. Here's the point. We had better be different. Because if we are on a path, if we are on a trajectory that it does not line up, does not comport with what the Word of God teaches our saved individual should be, then we are going to be in for a big surprise. And that's what Jude is telling us about. It's possible to be in church. It's possible to be even religious and yet not be right with God, not be saved. Here's a question once again. Is your faith anchored in Christ? 
Have you been transformed? Are you living in such a way that your life is reflective of one who is trusting Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? I ask myself that question. We all need to do that. And may God help us for his name's sake. Amen.